Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Eero, and I am your host for episode 32 on July 22, 2020. This podcast is part of the Eero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. With each episode of Air Medical Today, we explore a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The podcast is also indexed on iTunes. For additional information about the guests on the podcast, I also provide background data on the Air Medical Today website. If you would like to become a sponsor and or lead feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 612-367-6052. Today I am interviewing Mara Hughes, the Chief Executive Officer of Boston MedFlight. Before we get to the interview, I want to go over some feedback from previous episodes and provide some general updates. I did receive some very positive feedback on episode 31 from fellow National EMS Memorial bike riders on the interview of Brian Shaw, the president of the organization. They thought Brian did a great job in explaining what the bike ride is all about and the plans for a virtual ride in 2020 due to the COVID-19 epidemic. Again, if you have not listened to the interview of Mr. Jonathan Bunt in episode 30, you may want to, as he discusses dealing with the stress of COVID-19. Jonathan shared a wealth of information that I'm sure you will find very useful during these difficult times. To help with the cost of all the work I am doing in bringing news and information and the podcast to you, I would welcome your financial support. So if you or your company would like to be a sponsor, please contact me at webmaster at airmedtoday.com. It is a real pleasure to welcome Mara Hughes, the CEO of Boston MedFlight, to the podcast today. I contacted Mara months ago, but she asked that we delay the interview due to dealing with COVID-19 at her busy program, something I know all programs, whether air or ground, have had to confront. Mora has been the CEO of Boston MedFlight since 2016. She served as the chief financial officer before that time from 1998. Her background is in accounting and business administration with degrees from Merrimack College and Bentley University. Mora is someone I have known and respected for years through her leadership regionally, nationally, and internationally. Welcome to the podcast, Mora. It's a pleasure to be here, Edward. Well, it's great to have you. Um, Maura, you started at uh, Boston uh, MedFlight as the CFO in 1998. Uh, what attracted you to the organization, and what were you doing before uh, you joined? Well, I'll tell you, when I graduated um, college and then subsequently um, I got my MBA, I went into public accounting 
And what my job was was to go to nonprofits and basically audit them. And actually, in 1992, um, Boston MedFlight was one of my clients. Um, so that yeah. was the early days of Boston MedFlight. And it really gave me um, an appreciation of what nonprofits do um, for all of us, and particularly um, Boston MedFlight's nonprofit mission. Um, it really um, spoke to me. And when they were looking for um, someone to manage the um, business side of the house um, in 98, um, I interviewed and, and got that job. Got you. Well, um, what attracted you to, to not, not for profits? What, what was it uh, in, in your accounting? Well, you know, I would I would audit, you know, homeless shelters, um, you know, early childhood education places, and just meeting the clients who use these services. And I always thought to myself, you know, what what would these folks be doing if these nonprofits weren't here, you know, to help them? And you know, particularly with Boston MedFlight's mission, um, you know, they're taking care of patients on everybody's worst day of their lives. You know, they've had a critically um, bad accident or they have a critical illness and you know our staff are really being their lifesavers and you know what would their what would their experience be like if there was no Boston Med Flight so that's what really attracted me you know to the Boston Med Flight mission yeah yeah what what were some of the uh, big uh, uh, issues at the time when you when you served as a CFO with the organization so when I started in 98, um, it was the operational staff, excuse me, the operational staff, um, the receptionist, the IT guy, and me. Uh, so huh. I basically did everything um, from an administrative perspective. You know, I did, you know, I paid the bills, I collected the money, I did HR, payroll, you know, wow. all that. Um, and it was, you know, the organization was really pretty much still, you know, in its infancy. Um, but back then in 98, you know, we, Boston MedFlight started out, you know, with a single helicopter. And I think at that stage we had maybe two helicopters and two bases. Uh, but we were really looking at, you know, are we an air medical service or are we a critical care transport service? And uh, we were looking at, should we go into ground? You know, should we go into, you know, fixed wing? Um, and we were contemplating, you know, all that back um, in that late 90s. Yeah. Well, and then in uh, you know March 2016, uh, Dr. Suzanne Weddle uh, passed away, and the board asked you to serve in an interim role, and then as the uh, as the uh, CEO, uh, those were big shoes to fill. Uh, how was it at the beginning in both honoring Dr. Weddle and then leading Boston MedFlight? Well, you know, um, you know, Dr. Suzanne Wadle, she was my, you know, friend and mentor, you know, for 18 years. And it was, you know, mm -hmm. a, a big personal loss, you know, to me and to the industry in general. As you yes. know, she was one of our yes. icon pioneers, you know, in critical care transport. She established so many of the the critical care transport standards, and she really laid the groundwork, you know, for the industry. Um, but I'll tell you uh, they, the, the Boston MedFlight board asked me to step in as interim CEO, you know, which I was, you know, happy to do. Um, but, you know, we, we were thinking of ways of how we could honor her. Um, and I think she would be happy, you know, where we are now. You know, I'll tell you, you know, you talk about filling her shoes. You know, there's no filling her shoes. Um, I really look <laughs> at it as, yeah. you know, a team effort. And, you know, all of our team um, are, are filling her shoes 
Um, and it's, um, you know, they conducted a nationwide search uh, for over a year. Um, and then at some stage, you know, I put my hat in the ring and um, I ended up as the, uh, the permanent uh, CEO in 2017. Yeah, well, that's well said about uh, the, her shoes. I think it does take, uh, take the whole community uh, to do that because she did uh, provide so much for the air medical uh, community. So mm-hmm. um, uh, tell us some of the history of Boston MedFlight. How, how was this not-for-profit started? And well, you're celebrating your 35th anniversary this year. And, uh, you know, what is the mission and how has it changed over the years? Yes, yeah, so as you know, Edward, you know, Air Medical really came into the U.S. in like the late 70s, early 80s. And yep. the same thing happened in the Boston area. A couple of the Boston um, trauma centers uh, went to the Massachusetts Department of Public Health and said, you know, we'd like to start an air medical service. And the Massachusetts DPH said, fantastic idea, but all of you level one trauma centers in Boston aren't going to have your own helicopter service when you're all already sitting on the head of a pin. Um, you need to figure out a way to work together. Hmm. So that's when the Boston MedFlight uh, Consortium, nonprofit consortium, was formed. So we're a separate 501c3 nonprofit, but we've been supported by this consortium of hospitals, um, you know, since our first patient transport in 1985. Um, and it's been the same members all along. And, you know, as you know, in, you know, healthcare, um, you know, these institutions, you know, compete, um, you know, fiercely. Yes. But yes. over the last 35 years, I will say that they've all worked together, you know, on Boston MedFlight. We like to say we're the only cooperative venture uh, between all the institutions. <laughs> we actually added uh, a seventh um, institution um, a few years ago, and that's worked out really well. Um, but our board structure is um, such that every hospital has, uh, the founding hospitals have one physician and uh, one senior administrative person on the board. Um, the, um, the latest um, addition has one physician. But everyone really has, when they're sitting um, at, the, at the board table, Boston MedFlight's mission, you know, um, on their mind. And we're very lucky to have such senior administrative people on our board from the hospitals um, because they can speak for their institutions, but they also have obviously the industry knowledge, you know, and the love, you know, of Boston MedFlight. I mean, we have, you know, several members on our board who have actually been on our board since the beginning. Um, And so we're very fortunate to have their, um, you know, their love of Boston MedFlight and their passion and, you know, their, their knowledge, you know, to help us you know, figure out the future. Sure, that historical knowledge is really important. Mm-hmm. Are, mm-hmm. are the um, the physicians in certain specialties, or um, and are the administrative folks? Uh, what level in the organization are they? So this, the physicians that we have on our board um, are mostly trauma surgeons. Um, oh. We also have some critical care uh, critical care folks, um, and the. Um, we have some pediatric specialists. Obviously, almost a third of our patients now are either neonates or pediatric. So mm-hmm. we have some, um, you know, neonatal and pediatric um, specialties, uh, specialties. And we also have for the administrators, they're usually senior vice presidents um, or COOs. Uh, we have several COOs um, on our board of the hospitals. Yeah, excellent. So, um, so did it start out then with six members, and you have seven now? Yes. Uh-huh. And Correct. who are the members? 
I knew you were going to ask me that, right? I'm trying to <laughs> try to do an alphabetical order here. Okay, <laughs> Beth Israel Deaconess Hospital, Brigham and Women's Hospital, Boston Medical Center, um, Massachusetts General Hospital, Tufts Medical Center, Boston Children's Hospital, and Leahy Hospital and Medical Center. Did I get them all? Yeah, Is that seven. Yeah, I, I think okay. so. That well said. Yeah, uh, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. The um, <laughs> The uh, I, I find it fascinating because there's only a few places in the country that, you know, really formed uh, as consortiums, uh, you all being one, LifeLink 3 in, in uh, Minneapolis, uh, you know, started out cooperative. It started out with three and now 10 members, uh, and then um, CareFlight in in uh, Texas. So it's it's really interesting to to see that cooperation. I think it's very much the same. You've got competing institutions, but yet they come together um, when delivering uh, air medical or critical care transport. Do you, do you have any... And, oh, go ahead. And obviously I'm very biased, but I think it's an excellent model because yes. you don't have, you know, a... Um, critical care transport service on the back of one institution, it's really hard to run from a financial perspective um, a critical care transport service on the back of one institution. Because we have the consortium hospital, you know, we tap into them. Uh, they, we do clinical rotations. Um, you know, they really expect us to be an extension of their care, um, so we get a lot yes. from them. We have associate medical directors from each of the institutions that actually are very engaged with our crew. They help us with our training. Um, so just having that link, you know, is um, is is obviously very very important, um, you know, uh, with our life saving nonprofit mission. Yes. Do you um, also have Do you have any community members, or did you allow for other uh, members to that aren't consortium members to sit on the board so or board members? Yes. So as part of our um, st recent strategic plan that we put together, we actually updated our corporate um, bylaws and charters to accept community members. We're still recruiting for those positions. I've just added um, one um, community member. Um, she's a government relations um, expert um, mm -hmm. who's been very helpful to me. Um, but we will be adding, you know, additional members here in the future. Um, I think it's, it's just, um, again, an evolution, um, you know, of our program and kind of what we need now. Yeah, I think uh, it, it's a good point uh, because I, I think sometimes when you you know you look at the organization, and I this, did this at LifeLink 3 too, is you know, what other types of kind of specialty do you need? Somebody in aviation, someone you know, maybe in HR or, or something, and you don't always get that from the hospitals uh, themselves. So uh, that's uh, very interesting that you've done that. Um, you developed your own uh, FAA Part 135 aviation certificate. Uh, uh, of course, I know that uh, because, uh, again, thank you for helping LifeLink 3 gain uh, board approval to move ahead with their certificate, and that uh, recently was just fully implemented. But uh, tell us about the process and why you chose this route over having an air operator, and has this led to improving the overall aviation excellence of the program? 
Well, first of all, Edward, it was our pleasure, you know, to help LifeLink3. You know, we love, love to, to share our knowledge, um, you know, with anyone going through the process. This was a process for us. We had been talking about this at the board level for, you know, a decade. And what we really looked at, um, you know, when, when all the air medical services started, you know, in the 70s and 80s, they really needed an aviation expert to help them protect put this together because the hospitals didn't yes. have aviation, right. no expertise. So you had this outside vendor that was, you know, your partner in it. But as the years went on, you know, 20, 20, 25 years into this, we said, you know, we've learned a lot in that, you know, period of time. And we really want to be able to customize our aviation, you know, the way we want it. And, um, you know, and we had good partners, you know, our air operators, we had very good partners throughout the years. Um, but we really looked at it as, you know, an evolution, you know, of Boston MedFlight. And um, so we started putting in pieces, you know, I don't know, over a decade. You know, we made sure, <clears throat> excuse me, all of the helicopters, we owned all the helicopters. We didn't lease anything from a vendor. We got all our own um, insurance, aviation insurance directly. Yep. Mm-hmm. We um, got aviation expertise, you know, on our payroll. And we slowly did this, you know, transition. Um, and we actually... Um, made the transition in 2017. It's worked really, really well for us. We're very lucky because we have uh, very experienced senior um, aviation folks um, who run the aviation side for us. But also, um, you know, it's more like they're part of the team. You know, they always wore the Boston Med Flight, you know, flight suit and all that. But it's it's different when you're reporting, you know, to another employer. Um, I feel like having everybody, um, you know, on the same page, I think it, it's helped a lot um, with, you know, teamwork and, you know, just, just working as a team, you know, on, on a daily basis. Uh, how has the team, what specifically on teamwork do you think has improved? I think... Um, communication, you know, has improved. Mm-hmm. You're not going through if you want to make <clears throat> if you want to make a change to whatever you know, protocol or whatever you want to do. You don't have to go to another entity and say, hey, we're thinking about doing this. Can you talk? Can you talk about this with your pilots um, and your maintenance yep. technicians? We can actually work on these, you know, pieces, you know, together. And, and as you know, Edward, it's all about relationships and having closer relationships and the trust um, you know, it just makes for better, you know, in- integration, you know, and teamwork, in my opinion. Yeah. Was the, was the transition hard more from a um, standpoint of, you know, the different benefit structure? Or maybe they had, um, uh, you know, a, a retirement plan that they were vested in, et cetera. Was that a, well, one issue? of one of yeah one of the promises that we made to ourselves is that when we transitioned our folks, they weren't going to lose anything. So we mm-hmm. actually um, had a more robust uh, benefits plan, um, you know, than their previous employers. So you know that wasn't an issue. But we made sure everyone um, got their. Um, you know, uh, time, you know, that they've worked, you know, for Boston MedFlight, uh, we, we counted that as, you know, working for us. Um, so no one lost anything and no one, um, everyone would get a bit of a pay bump, um, you know, when they transitioned over. Um, and there were some folks who decided not to, you know, transition over, which was, you know, perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're in a, I'll have to say, I've been at Boston MedFlight, obviously, you know, a long time. We have, you know, a extremely strong um, aviation team. And um, I just, um, I couldn't be happier with where we are right now. Yeah, that's great. What, um, well, one thing I wanted to say, I, I, um, 
it, it is very important because I had other people ask about, you know, well, how do you do a part 135? And you had said that the pre-steps that you did, and I remember you telling me that, um, um, you know, I think about a year ago, but the, you know, owning your aircraft and having your own insurance definitely is something that, you know, you need to be working on, and that is stuff that you can still have an operator and still have that. So um, thanks for mentioning that. What type of aircraft do you have and uh, when... Uh, well, let's talk about the aircraft first, and I, I want to talk about your ground ambulances too, but tell us about the aircraft. Sure. So we currently have four Airbus H145s. Uh, we transitioned um, our fleet. We made the decision to transition our fleet over the last few years to standardize. Uh, so mm-hmm. we have the four Airbus H145s. We also have um, an Airbus EC145 uh, as backup. Mm-hmm. Um, and those aircraft have worked really well um, for us. Obviously, the standardization, having the same airframe, obviously makes the training for the pilots easier, uh, the maintenance of the you know aircraft and parts sure. support and all that sort of thing. Um, so we've been really pleased with that. We've made that transition over the last uh, two to three years. What type of aircraft did you have before, Mara? So we had um, a Sikorsky um, F-76C++, um, and we had an Airbus um, EC-145 fleet. So we, we've, we've flown, I think I've, I've told um, Ramon at Airbus, we have flown every um, version of the BK that um, Airbus um, has had, you know, because we've been doing this, you know, since 1985. Yeah, that's great. And so you're very happy with the aircraft? Yes, and yes, their performance. Very happy. So, what type of uh, interior do you have on those? So the interior yeah. was done uh, by Metro Aviation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've used them for our last oh I don't know six seven eight uh, completions. They do um, a fabulous job um, on the completions for us. Yes, they're was, a great that's, partner. That's one of their big specialties. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Um, and then, how many? Uh, when did you get into ground transport? And how many ambulances do you have? And uh, Sure. I should also mention we also do fixed wing. We have an airplane. Oh, uh, yes. We have a King Air uh, 200. Um, and we have currently on the ground fleet, we have seven, soon to be eight, um, class one lifeline ambulances. We, we have those either on a freight, freight liner or international chassis. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, like I said, we start, I started med flight in 98 and in, um, I think we're the same as any other, you know, service in the eighties and nineties, whenever there was seventies, eighties, nineties, whenever there was a, we call it bad weather ground, you know, so we can't fly for weather and the crew goes in the back of somebody else's ambulance yep. and you take care of the patient. But the problem with that situation is that you can't bill for that. And so we started looking at, okay, let's, why don't we get an ambulance, you know, ourselves, ground ambulance ourselves, and then we can bill for it. And uh, so we'll do bad weather ground. And so once we started doing bad weather ground, we realized, well, you know what, there's, there's a whole patient population that um, really is better served with the ground. And we could do a lot more than just bad weather ground. So um, what we have evolved into is that the helicopters are used for anything that's time sensitive. So heart attacks, strokes, um, any trauma, anything that's uh, geographically isolated. So, you know, our islands that we support. 
And then we re- really use the ground, critical care ground, for everything else. And um, our sickest patients are actually on the ground. Um, we also serve a large neonatal uh, population and pediatric um, population, and the vast majority of those um, are taken care of, you know, in our uh, ground ambulances. And as you know, all of our vehicles are configured the same. They're basically in a, an, a mobile ICU, um, and our staff is able to do everything, you know, in those vehicles, and all the crew work all vehicles. So, so they do cross over from air and ground. Yes, yeah. We've found right. from a scheduling perspective and a training perspective. So, um, we actually take care of over I don't know over eight hundred neonates a year, wow. and all of our crews are able to able to take care of you know every patient because our crews never know if they're going to get the you know, the one-pounder neonate or, you know, the 101-year-old, you know, having a stroke, um, and they were able to take care of, you know, everything, you know, in between. So what what is the uh, crew, uh, the, the clinical crew configuration? What type of training? Is it nurse, nurse, nurse medic, or...? So we have a critical care nurse um, and a critical care uh, paramedic, mm-hmm. um, and we have obviously the pilots um, in the air, and we have our um, EMT um, specialists that drive the ambulances, you know, right. for us. So that's our, you know, operations team. But there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes to support those crews. You know, we have a, a new state-of-the-art uh, communication center. Our communications technicians are just uh, fabulous. I love to go and watch them work and how they do the logistics. Uh, they're a very, very talented crew. You know, our, our maintenance team and everyone behind the scenes, you know, everyone from patient financial services, you know, who are helping, you know, patients through our very complicated health care reimbursement process, you know, to our fundraising folks, you know, f- you know finance and, and HR. Um, it's, it's, it's just a fabulous group. And everyone at the end of the day knows that what they do is very impactful, you know, to the Boston Med Flight, you know, nonprofit mission. And it's all about, you know, taking the best care of patients that we can. Sure. And the reason I asked um, is so like on a pediatric or a, a neonatal um, transport your crew does that, or do you bring on a, a specialist? No, we do all that. Our consortium institutions have asked us to do um, their um, neonatal transports for them. We work very, very closely with all the um, neonatologists in Boston, um, and we do also uh, repatriations. Um, so when the babies are ready to go, um, not ready to go home, but ready ready to go to a step-down um, NICU, you know, we do those transports. Like I said, we probably do, you know, seven or 800 of those transports a year. And um, we, we take care of a lot of we take care of a lot of children. Now, Boston Children's Hospital has their own transport service. Um, you know, they're part of our consortium also, but we work with them very closely. We do backups for them. They do backups for us. But, okay. um, yeah, we take care of a lot of little ones, you know, every year. Great. Um, so you said that they cross over. Um, how, how do you maintain your clinical excellence? Um, talk about the training that you do and also how your medical direction and review works. Sure. So I'll tell you the first thing um, about the training and all that is actually hiring the right people. You know, the folks that we have come in uh, to Boston MedFlight, the clinical crew, I mean, they um, are at the top of their careers. They're very, very experienced um, folks. 
Um, and once they get here, they go through a very, very rigorous um, training, you know, uh, process. Um, you know, they fly as a third person. Um, they go on orientation. And they fly with a limited matrix of who they can for, for a long period of time. But I'll tell you, one of the benefits of being in a consortium is that we're able to do clinical rotations in all of these, you know, yeah. You know, academic medical centers. So all of our crews do uh, clinical rotations. All the hospitals were able to tap into that. We also have a state-of-the-art uh, simulation center, uh, which is fabulous. And the type of training that you can do in simulation, um, our simulation is so real. Um, uh, they, they do a fabulous job at that. But also, when it comes to medical direction and all that, we have a uh, chief medical officer, Dr. Jason Cohen, um, uh, is with us. We also have a, an assistant chief medical officer, uh, Dr. Susan Wilcox, um, um, on our payroll. But we also have associate medical directors, I think I mentioned, from each of the hospitals that work with our um, um, our folks. And I'll tell you, um, being having physicians on our board, having physicians work really closely with us, it's really kept our clinical excellence high. Um, as you know, you know, Suzanne was a physician, mm -hmm. and one of her, um, you know, mantras for us is that we need to keep the clinical excellence high. And what is, what is the next thing that we're going to look at? What is the next thing we're going to do? Right now, um, we just started carrying blood. I know a lot of folks carry blood in other parts of the country, mm -hmm. um, but, but no one in Massachusetts does that. So we were the first critical care transport service in Massachusetts to actually start carrying blood, and that's going to be a huge, you know, benefit um, to what's going on. Um, and then just, you know, what else, what is the next thing that, that we're going to be looking at that's going to be uh, good for patients? Talk a little bit um, uh, on, on the rotations that you do. Um, you know, with your institutions, how, how did you get around the fact that, you know, these are employees of Boston MedFlight, but not of the hospital and, and some of the issues surrounding that? And are they just there on an observational basis or do they actually uh, do some hands-on work? No, they actually, they actually do skills. Um, uh -huh. So as part of our consortium, we have we call, call them member hospital agreements with all our hospitals. So it basically is a document that says Boston Medfa is going to go do this and the consortium institution is going to do this. And one of the things that we have in that, you know, participation agreement, if you will, is that they will provide clinical rotations, you know, uh, for our staff. And I think they really look at us as an extension of their hospitals, which they are. Um, and obviously, you know, as long as we have the, um, you know, the medical liability insurance or whatever, and you're able to show that, right. um, that's fine. We've actually never run into, um, you know, an issue with that. Um, you, you know, and it's difficult because they're trying to train their own staff, but they're always very good about um, making sure they get, they have room for the Boston MedFlight staff also. Yeah, that's excellent because I, I know that's something that wasn't being done at LifeLink. We uh, worked uh, very hard to get all those agreements, but um, it was um, quite a process uh, because mm -hmm. of all the questions that were asked because it wasn't, hadn't been done from the beginning. Uh, so that's, mm -hmm. that's nice to hear that. How, how uh, is there a certain number of hours or is there different clinical skill sets that you rotate people through? 
Oh, it's um, it's everything. It's um, you know they go into the OR to do intubations. They mm-hmm. do um, you know the, the neonatal rotations. Um, you know, they do OB rotations. We don't see a lot of OB patients, um, but we um, you know need to be ready to take care of that. So basically everything we do a burn rotation. Um, basic, so it's it's probably it depends upon every um, clinician has an individual clinical plan that's established every year. And of course, if you've been at MedFly you know, 30 years, you don't need the same clinical plan as somebody who just started. Right. Um, so it's probably anywhere, you know, don't hold me to this, I'm guessing it's anywhere between 40 to um, 80 hours of clinical time that they need, um, you know, and, and times, you know, how many, uh, we probably have, let's see, uh, seven, 60, 70, you know, clinicians that need to get through that. So that's a lot of time and a lot of um that we're asking for our consistent hospitals, but we're able to do a lot of internal training, especially with um, COVID. Yes. We hadn't been able to go do clinical rotations, so we've brought a lot in-house um, and those fabulous um, associate medical directors that I talked to you about that have actually come to our facility um, and done a lot of training, um, and also Jason and Susan have done a lot of training, and we've done a lot of um, simulation uh, training too because, you know, this is, you know, what we're you – know, dealing with now. We still need to hire and orient um, staff and train staff. So that's what we're working on now. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Um, uh, oh, I, I was going to ask, Does so all the institutions participate with that then too in the rotations? Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yep. How many uh, air and ground bases do you have and, and where are they located? So currently we have four bases. Our corporate headquarters um, is in Bedford, Massachusetts at Hanscom Field. We actually just um, um, built a state-of-the-art facility, operations facility. Uh, We had been on the military side of the base for years and years in a World War II era hangar. Um, and when land became available, you know, we jumped on that. Um, it was on the civilian side. And so we've been in the hangar probably two years now. Um, and we'd love to give tours, um, not right now with COVID, but we're ha- I'm happy to show um, folks our facility. So that's our, our corporate headquarters. We also have um, a base um, in Lawrence, at Lawrence Airport. Uh, we do air and ground out of that. And we also have one at Plymouth Airport. Um, air and ground also, and then um, Mansfield, we, at which we do air and ground. So we do air and ground out of each base, and our Bedford base um, has the um, fixed-wing um, airplane. Right. So you don't have any separate uh, ground bases. They're all located with the air. Correct. Yeah. Co-located, yes. Yep. And, and if you and I are the crew, clinical crew that day, would we be assigned to one or the other, or would we just uh, go off in the first uh, transport requests, whether that's air or ground? So um, usually you're assigned to one vehicle, but there are shifts that we split, and we do mm-hmm. that based on demand for the services. Sure. But when everyone comes in for their shift, they do check out the other vehicles just in case. So, example, for example, if the weather goes down, Yep. Even though you're assigned a rotor, you may end up in a ground vehicle. You'll check out that ground vehicle just to make sure everything's, you know, ready to go. So um, while you may be assigned to, assigned to rotor, you know, chances are you, you could end up in fixed wing or ground, you know, for that shift. Um, so we run 11 shifts every 24 hours. Okay. One of the things uh, you had sent me your um, uh CV and uh, as very interested, uh, strategic planning has always been something that uh, I feel is very important. But 
Um, and you talk about that as one of your skill sets. Talk about Boston, how Boston MedFlight does strategic planning. Uh, is it an annual process, and how many years out do you go? So we try to do strategic planning um, every five years, um, sometimes successful, sometimes we're not. But so we, which we, we did our latest strategic planning session maybe three years ago now, four years ago, but we really update it every year um, to reflect what's going on um, in the industry. Like I said before, we're very lucky to have senior folks from the hospitals on our board to help us work through this. Mm. Um, but I will tell you to get seven institutions on the same page of what Boston Med Flight should look like for the, for the next five years um, is a wonderful process to go through. It's, you know, challenging. Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, brain power in the room. Um, but I will say that we went through a very uh, robust process here about three years ago, um, and it went really well. And um, now you've reminded me that I need to get it on the calendar here for the next couple of years <laughs> um, to have another session for our group. How, how do you update on a yearly basis? Do you include um, a, a subset of the, the whole group? Yeah, so what we do um, internally is we set um, internal departmental goals um, and then on a yearly basis, and what we try to do is we reconcile all that back up to the uh, strategic plan. And the other way that we do this, too, is when we're looking at a new endeavor or we're looking to mm -hmm. do something we're like okay how does this tie back to our strategic plan and if it doesn't do we really want to be considering it um so it's not just you know this two-page you know uh, you know document that we pull out every five years and you know change the commas on it uh we really look at it as a living document and say okay how does this relate to what we're doing now and these goals that we have are we forwarding our strategic plan, you know, with what we're doing. Yeah, it's it's so important to to keep keep it updated to make it a living document. I know so many. I, I used to teach strategic planning, um, you know, with MTLI because I've always been a big uh, firm believer that you have to have a, a map of where you're going. You're going to get somewhere, but you just not, might not know where uh, you're going. But um, that you just don't create it and put it on the shelf. You know, that it's got to be part of everything uh, that you do. Um, that That's different. Uh, you know, it's it's hard. I, when I was first doing a lot of strategic planning, you'd, you'd go five years out. It, it's pretty hard to go, you know, because things change so rapidly, you know. Mm -hmm. So that is good that you're updating yearly. Uh, places I've been at, we usually would get together, um, you know, once a year to do it, but you'd you'd update it, you know, you'd look at what you have, are there things that need to change? Who Who's involved with that? Is that just your board or do you have some of your senior uh, team members? So the senior leadership group, um, they're really the ones who are driving, yep. um, you know, the goals and they put all of that, you know, together. together. It, it all has to tie into the, um, the uh, strategic plan. But at the board level, it's usually either the executive committee or a subset of the committee that will look at it. Um, and then obviously, um, you know, myself and um, the CFO um, and, and Jason, the chief medical officer, obviously are, are you know, involved with that and the senior leadership group. Yeah. Um, Boston MedFlight relies uh, a lot on donations. Um, since I believe most programs in the, in the U.S. at least do not, tell us how 
uh, this started and how you solicit and accept donations? So we really, as a nonprofit, we really rely on um, donations to support our mission. Um, you know, we go after it all, you know, corporate support, foundations, grateful patients. You know, we do it all. Um, and you know, because it's very, and you know this, Edward, it's very expensive um, to do critical care transport uh, the way we do it um, and do it uh, with high, you know, clinical capabilities and safety. Um, and we really, really rely on this philanthropic support. Um, it's uh, it's a challenge, you know, um, since so many of the air medical services in the country are for profit. Um, first, we have to set the groundwork and say, oh, sorry, but, you know, that, that's not us. We have a different model. We're a nonprofit. We give away $4 million in free care every year. Um, you know, we don't, you know, uh, balance bill, you know, patients. We don't, we don't do all of that, those sorts of things. Um, so because of that, you know, we rely on the donations, you know, to, to cover the deficit. Um, and so it's, it's uh, I'd say probably a third of my time is spent um, on development, you know, in fundraising. Wow. Wow. Do, um, do you have large uh, groups that give every year or do you constantly have to get new ones? Uh, we have, you know, donors who um, donate to us every year and we're, we're very, very thankful. Um, but we're, we're always generating um, new donors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, we're caring for over 4,700 patients every year. Um, and, you know, we reach out to patients and, you know, see if they want to, you, you know, that. contribute yeah. to our mission. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, we have, we're very, very lucky to have um, strong relationships uh, with our patients and supporting, you know, um, our mission, you know, into the future. Did, how do you um, handle, you know, because each of your institutions is probably looking at um, uh, donations and philanthropy too. How do you not cross over with them? That's, that is an excellent question, um, Edward. But I'll tell you that when the hospitals, um, when we first started, uh, the hospital said, you know what, don't do any fundraising because you're going to compete with us. Yeah. But once Boston Med Flights started getting larger and larger and larger, and they looked at what the needs were, you know, from a philanthropic perspective, um, they said, you know what, you guys should start doing your own fundraising. And so we have, you know, a small, you know, fundraising department, you know, two or three people, mm-hmm. FTEs. Um, and so, but we're not, we're, we really don't compete uh, with what the hospitals, you know, we're, what we raise every year is very modest um, compared to what the hospitals uh, raise. Um, and I'll be honest with you, um, they, um, sometimes they use Boston MedFlight patients uh, for their own philanthropic you know, um, so patients that we bring them, they will actually use those in their annual report, you know, to raise money, you know, for themselves. Sure. Um, but, you know, it was Boston MedFlight who brought them, you know, that patient on our undesignated roster. Um, so uh, we have a really good relationship with them, and, and no one's looking at, um, oh, you, you know, you're stealing my donor or anything like that. Um, but it, we still have challenges, and, you know, um, we're always looking for new ways, you know, to tell our story um, and just to get the word out because a lot of people, when they hear Boston MedFlight, they think, oh, helicopters and whatever, and nobody thinks that we're a nonprofit organization. So we need to do a much better job of, you know, uh, singing from the rooftops. You know, we're a nonprofit. You know, think about us <laughs> when right. you're making your, uh, you know, annual donations. Did you set up a separate um, 501c3 or are you just using the Boston MedFlight 501c3? 
We talked about that ex- we extensively mm-hmm. over the last decade, and we decided to do it internally. So our development function is actually a department um, in our um, you know regular corporate structure. We looked at putting a foundation together, um, and honestly, for us, we thought that just having a separate entity that had to be managed, um, the benefit you know, the work would have outweighed, you know, the benefit. That's not to say we won't change that, you know, in the future uh, when we look at, you know, our d- development challenges. But um, right now it's it's a department of Boston Med Flight. Yeah, I, I know Life Flight of Maine uh, has done that. Um, and yes, I, I've, I've been at um, three different consortiums, and this has always been a big issue. At, at one of them, uh, they allowed us to fundraise, but the, the donations went to each. There was two hospitals in that, that consortium. It went to their uh, um, foundation where the money went, but then we were able to uh, use that that money. Um, and well, uh, Go ahead. I'll tell you, uh, Life Flight of Maine does a fabulous job with their foundation. Tom Judge yes. knows I'm very jealous <laughs> of, you know, the, the 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 foundation that he has and what the money that they're able to raise, you know, every year. Um, yeah, they do, they do a fabulous job. So when when we grow up, we want to be like uh, Tom Judge and his uh, <laughs> his foundation raising all that money. Yeah, yeah, they do a really good job. Um, mm-hmm. Are the funds earmarked? Are they used for specific purposes, or does it support uh, general operations? So we um, obviously um, ask for money to support our general um, operations, um, but we do go after specific items. You know, the latest that I can think of is, um, you know, with our COVID response, mm-hmm. um, you know, we were spending a lot of money on PPE and equipment and yes. stuff, um, you know, for the staff. So we um, did some specific targeted um, uh, requests for that. We were able to secure funding for a um, – a steramist system that disinfects the inside of your ground ambulances. Uh, we were able to get funding, you know, for it, for an isopod um, for our uh, fixed wing, um, you know, to to isolate uh, the patients. So we we do do targeted um, in general. Yeah, yeah. One of the other things that uh, I've been fascinated with, and um, in fact had. Uh, Boston Med Flight speak to the uh, Minnesota Air Medical Council about um, sharing location data. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how the New England programs work in sharing their location. You know, why was it started, and where were uh, have there been any issues uh, with it after, and how is it working today? So, in um, our area in New England, um, in the eighties. Um, there were only three air medical programs um, at that time, and we, the three programs got together. It was Boston Med Flight, Hartford Lifestar, and UMass Life Flight got together and said, you know what, we're going to work together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just like Boston Med Flight works a consortium, we're going to work all together. So we formed this Northeast Air Alliance. Uh, which includes New York, and as new programs um, came up through the years, they've all joined. So every single air medical program in uh, New England um, um, is a part of this Northeast Air Alliance, and we um, talk monthly. Uh, we meet quarterly, wow. mm-hmm. and it's it's an opportunity to obviously develop relationships, which you know are very important, but also to develop best practices um, and, uh, just learn, you know, from one another. And 
um, you know, our communication centers work very closely to each other. We have a policy where, you know, the closest aircraft goes to the closest, you know, scene call. Um, and it's just a way of increasing communication and safety. And um, I think it was, I'm trying to remember now, it was um, after that, um, it was Arizona where the two aircraft uh, flew into each other. Um, was probably 10 or 12 years ago. Um, we looked at New England and said, you know what, what can we do to prevent that happening in our service area? Because our air area is very busy. And so at that time, we installed a system called Fleet Eyes. And what it is, yes. is a GPS tracker that's in all of our aircraft and all of the New England programs um, in New York, um, you know, Life in New York also agreed to install these GPS trackers. So we, in our communication center, we have um, up on our screen where all of the um, aircraft are and when all they're coming in, you know, to Boston or whatever. And I know that other folks will say, oh, man, I can't believe that you would, you know, share that data. But the fact of the matter is we look at it as a safety um, precaution, and um, we, we treat it that way. And nobody's sitting there looking at where every, you know, transport is going. But, you know, when... Uh, helicopters coming into Boston and they're 10 minutes out and they haven't called our communication center, you can bet that, um, you know, we're, we're getting that, you know, pilot, um, you know, on the radio and say, hey, you know, let us, you know, help you organize logistics and that sort of thing. So, again, we look at it as a safety um, initiative. All of the programs have signed on to do it and we all do it. Um, and I think it's fabulous technology and, and I wish everyone else, you know, w would you know, benefit from that. I, I think it's wonderful. It's something that um, I've always felt was important. I tried to do that both in Minnesota and, and Wisconsin. And, you know, the pushback you always get, well, you're going to use that for marketing to say where you're flying, you know, to most of the time. So then I'm going to put an aircraft there or, uh, or um, you know, just, uh, I think, building that trust. But I think once you do, you're all there to do uh, you know, the right thing for patients. And that's been my thing that you always, especially, you know, like you said, on scene flights is sending the closest appropriate aircraft um, to, to that scene. Um, but I, I, when you all did the presentation uh, a number of years ago, it was also um, safety at some of the uh, smaller heliports that, you know, you could see what the activity was when your aircraft is coming in if there was another aircraft there. Is that, mm -hmm. that yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. because, like I said, we're we're a very busy area and, and a small area. Yeah. Um, so I think having this technology is just you know fabulous. We also have um, rooftop cameras um, yep. at all our institutions. That's that's actually um, in our communication center, yes. so they can actually look at the GPS, but also look at a live video feed. Um, communications can see that you know the aircraft hasn't you know left it off yet. Yeah, that was a requirement uh, at LifeLink mm -hmm. uh, 3 mm -hmm. also because we had cameras that still do cameras mm -hmm. at all the helipads. So mm -hmm. um, I think that's just admirable, and I'm glad that program is still working. I didn't realize you were meeting monthly. That's, uh, that's mm -hmm. great. What, what, type, what issues do you come up with? Is there any that come up without naming names or anything? That Well, um Everyone, since you meet so frequently, you, you develop really strong re relationships sure. with, um, with everyone. Um, Andy Farkas, who's um, our COO uh, for clinical operations, um, he kind of runs the group. Um, he does a fabulous job, and, you know, we, we all know each other really well. Um, the last call I can tell you was last week. 
And what we shared was um, we went to Dunker training. Um, everybody knows what the survival uh, systems training. We sent our folks in, to do it in PPE. And how would, how would that impact um, if there was an incident, if you were in full-up PPE? Um, and so we, at this last um, NIA call, uh, it was actually a Zoom call, uh, we shared our video of our staff um, getting dunked, um, you know, wearing, you know, full-up PPE with their N95s and all that and kind wow. of the lessons learned. So the lesson, what, what the, the most important thing, lesson learned is, um, you know, you need to orient yourself, obviously, um, before you flip over, but also uh, take your N95 mask off before you hit the water because once you get in the water, it's like a suction cup and you can't, wow. you can't mm. get it. It's tough to get off. Yeah. So we're, we're looking at stuff like that. Um, other more like mundane things, like, you know, we need to buy a new vent. You know, what type of vents are you using? You know, have you been having trouble with this type of balloon pump? Um, you know, you know, that sort of thing. So you're using it to share information. Uh, yes. Yeah, that's, yep. that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, COVID-19 has certainly been a major issue for, uh, for everyone in healthcare, uh, and certainly for air medical transport providers. Um, how has COVID-19 affected Boston MedFlight? Uh, are you seeing an increase in ground transport or no change? Um, and then what type of protective equipment you're using? You've, you've touched upon that already, but... Um, Edward, I'll tell you, this was a huge challenge for us. You mm-hmm. know, when we got wind, you know, that COVID was on the horizon, you know, it was the end of February, beginning of March, um, our operational group got together and said, okay, how are we going to deal with this? I mean, listen, we take care of infectious disease patients all the time, sure. but, you know, nothing, nothing on this scale. And so very, very quickly, we ramped up. Um, all of our PPE stock, um, did training training for the staff, um, what was going to be the protocols and how are we going to take care of these patients. Um, and I can tell you, as of today, we've cared for over 640 critically ill COVID patients, wow. which is a huge amount. And you know, in Massachusetts, we have, you know, at, um, as of today, we have over 8,100 deaths and over 100,000 people have tested positive. So um, March and April, sorry, April and May were very, very challenging. I'll tell you that there were some days that all we did was COVID patients. Wow. Uh, and these are tough, these are tough calls for the group. You know, they're in full up PPE for the whole time and they take twice as long. Um, you know, you have to decontaminate the vehicle, uh, and then it's one after the other. I mean, there were some days that we were doing 12, 13, 14 critically ill COVID patients, and that's all we were doing because what happened was when, you know, the, um, you know, everything shut down, um, you know, all of our, you know, helicopter trauma volume and the hospitals weren't doing, you know, procedures. Right. So all of our regular kind of business really tanked. Um, you know, we were down, our helicopter volume was down, you know, in the spring, like by 50%. Um, but we were taking care of really, really critically ill, you know, COVID patients. And we did the vast majority of those uh, by ground. We did actually 90% of the, those um, on the ground and 10% of those, you know, on the air. Um, 
but it's it's tough work, and I have to you know give my hats off to the to the crew, um, you know, to take care of these patients. Thankfully, thankfully, we've seen the number of COVID patients have gone down, um, and I can tell you in Massachusetts that's only happened um, because you know folks have stayed at home and you know you know aren't traveling and all that. I mean, our our we have a very sophisticated. Um, you know, ICU system in Boston, and they all did a really good job working with each other and where we're going to move these COVID patients um, and who's going to take the, the new batch coming in today. Um, but they were really stretched. I mean, our ICUs in Boston were at like, uh, you know, 140%, 150% of licensed beds. Um, but oh. we were able to, yeah. you know, flatten the curve, as they say, and not get overwhelmed. Um, and now, so we still take care of COVID patients every day, um, you know, maybe two or three, but not like it was, you know, earlier in the spring. But, you know, all the infectious disease people are telling us that we need to be prepared, you know, for another surge in the fall, uh, which is what we're doing. So we're making sure that we have... Uh, one of the things that we ran into uh, were like vent supplies. Um, mm-hmm. We were just taking care of so many vented patients. Um, and so we're really trying to gear up uh, to have our stock, uh, have our stock of PPE. Uh, one of the things that we have done is we were using N95 masks on all these transports, but we have transitioned all of our staff to, they're called Envo masks. Um, they are actually, um, they're assigned to you. So it is your mask and you just change the filters out of it. Um, and they're much more comfortable than, than the N95. So oh, we've just um, yeah. deployed those out, uh, you know, to our staff for protection. And we've got a lot of good feedback from the staff um, that they're much better than the N95s uh, yeah. for the work that we do. Yeah, this has been such a major thing. And, you know, it's, well, I won't get into political uh, stuff, but you know mm-hmm. the the number of patients and the states that have opened up. Um, you know, the warnings were all there, and uh, you know they're seeing the same things now that New York saw. You know, in the spring in Florida, Texas, Arizona, mm-hmm. um, you know, getting overloaded. So. Um, Boston MedFlight recently passed a milestone with your 80,000 transports uh, since your founding in 85. What's that uh, meant to you and the team? Yeah, so 80,000 patients, I mean, it's mind-boggling <laughs> yes. you know, when you think about it. Um, you know, but I think, you know, I'm very lucky in my role. I, I get to talk to a lot of our patients. I, I get to talk to a lot of our patients' families. But each one of those patients, you know, they, that was somebody's child or parent or loved one. Um, and it's, it's, it's a huge, you know, milestone. And you think about, you know, it's 80,000 patients, but how many patients' lives? And, you know, you know we've probably impacted, you know, a million people with our, you know, with our, um, you know life-saving um, nonprofit mission. And it's, it's, it, it's, it's, it's very rewarding to me. Um, obviously, eighty thousand is a big number, but it's it's to talk to the individual patients to see how much Boston MedFlight has impacted them, you know, personally. And I've I've had so many people say to me, you know, Mar, I would not be here standing talking to you right now if it wasn't for Boston MedFlight. My child, my child would not have survived without Boston MedFlight. And so it's very, you know, impactful, and it's it has a lot of meaning, obviously, to our group. Yeah, I just uh, love it. You know, I follow a lot of the stories in the air medical world uh, through air medical today and put those out and i'm always heartened by the uh patient stories it, i unfortunately it doesn't seem like the u.s programs do that as much uh, uh the programs in uh england 
do it a lot. You, you, you see mm-hmm. that where someone will visit the, the team that transported them. Mm-hmm. Let's, um, I just want to ask a few other questions. Um, uh, you've done a lot of behind-the-scenes work and served on ad hoc committees with the Association of Critical Care Transport. Uh, when did you first become involved? And uh, is Boston MedFlight is a, is a member of ACT. Um, uh, when did you join and why did you join? Sure. Well, Suzanne, obviously my predecessor, she was very involved in the beginning stages yep. of um, ACT, and if, and so, and I was, <laughs> uh, because I was doing a lot of the behind the scenes uh, pieces. You know, when they were drafting their mission and vision, when they were putting their bylaws together and all that, I was, you know, helping Suzanne with all those drafts. Um, but actually, I don't know if you know this, Edward, but originally the organization was going to be called Patient First Air Ambulance Alliance. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. Yes. And so uh, before they actually incorporated, they ended up changing it, you know, to ACT. Um, but so I think it was around 2008, 2009. Um, and obviously ACT started doing a lot of its work before it was officially, you know, incorporated. Um, but Suzanne obviously was one of the founding members. Um, and I worked with her a lot on behind the scenes pieces with we were a founding member we really believe in the act mission because it's all about the patients um and you know we continue to be a member of this to this day actually dr jason cohen our chief uh, medical officer he actually serves on the act board and yes. i'm always on some type of act committee or or doing something that they've asked me to do um it's a phenomenal organization Yes, I, I was involved uh, from the beginning, too. When I was with MedServe Fitch, I was actually helped put the, the website together and so know a lot about the, the name change and stuff. Is, is Boston MedFlight a, uh, also a member of AIMS? Yes, so we are actually, um, we've been a member of AIMS since it was, what was it called before, Ash Beams? Whatever. Yep. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So we've been yep. a member of AIMS since uh, the beginning, yes. Yes. So... Um, do you see, uh, you know, it's been somewhat of a split. I've been involved with, with both organizations, been on the board of ACT and now uh, on the board of AIMS again, which I had, I think this is the third time I've been on the board. Uh, do you see the organizations getting back together in the future? Well, so at Boston MedFlight, we feel strongly that we want to be involved with whatever is going on. So mm-hmm. we obviously feel, feel very strong about ACT. We continue to support um, AIMS. You know, we've had, you know, our staff members be board members of AIMS. We, we, we teach a lot. Um, we have folks who teach at MTLI and, you know, present at AMTC every year. We also joined AMOA since we have our own POT 135 yes, now. Right. Mm-hmm. We joined AMOA. So those three organizations um, I've been involved with for a lot for a while, and they're all very, very good at what they do. Um, I just wish that they would work closer together. I mean, they're not always going to agree philosophically on everything, but I'll tell you, we are a small industry. Critical care transport or air medical transport, we're a small industry, and when you have so many different associations out there, it's very confusing to Joe Public um, as to, you know, what's the difference between ACT and MOA and AIMS and whatever. Um, And to be honest with you, the three organizations agree on, you know, 85%, um, you know, of what they should be agreeing on. Um, So I I do wish that the three organizations would work uh, more closely together, but they all have uh, valid missions and I'm, I'm glad that we're, you know, members of all of them. You uh, singing to the choir. It's exactly how I have felt that you needed to be uh, involved 
in each of the organizations. But I do remember the days when, you know, you had everybody together. Um, yeah, there was differences of opinions uh, back then. And, you know, MOA was the, I think it was called the CEO group uh, mm-hmm. when I was the president, now called chair of, of Ames. But, yeah, I I think it's even higher. I think it's more like 90, 95% if you really get down to it because it's safety and patient care. But uh, mm-hmm. well said. Um, you went to Washington to watch the first meeting of the Air Ambulance and Patient Billing Advisory Committee. I think that was back in um, January. Um, and uh, what were your observations on the information being presented and um, what do you think will be the result of the committee's work? I know that's been delayed now, you know, with COVID. So I thought that the um, two-day program, they put a lot into a short period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they did a nice um, overview of um, the industry and the history. Uh, but what I think was essential is, you know, some folks on this committee have been, you know, involved in air medical for 30 years, and some of them are brand spanking new. They don't know, they didn't know anything coming into air medical. So you have um, this difference of knowledge um, gap. So I think that that two days actually did a lot to bring everybody kind of onto the same level of knowledge. Um, And then so a lot of the work now is going to be done in separate subcommittees. Um, And I understand that the subcommittees are still continuing to meet, you know, kind of virtually. Um, But to be honest with you, Edward, um, I I really have hopes um, that something's going to be resolved. Um, You know, as an industry, you know, there are issues. There is issues in the air medical and critical care transport industry and that we have failed to, um, you know, to solve ourselves. And because we haven't solved them ourselves, um, you know, an outside entity is now going to tell us that, you know, we need to do this. But um, I'm glad that, you know, we're being involved, you know, in the process. Um, I know a lot of the people on the committee, they're, they're good folks, and um, they're going to, you know, do what's right, you know, for patients. Because, you know, this balance billing and patients getting crazy expensive bills and leaning patients' homes, you know, yes, all of that yes. stuff, this just needs to go away. Yes, yes. And it's... Um I was talking to another uh, member of the community, you know, that uh, they, they talk about uh, one of the ideas was to sp- split the bill between clinical and aviation, and that gets very difficult. You know, I think from mm-hmm. once you really dig into that, how how do you do that? But um, it is mm-hmm. in training. But I know a lot of, you know, folks in the insurance world are, you know, it's kind of a real battle on on how you do that, but I think we have been our own worst enemy uh, mm-hmm. with that too. And mm-hmm. speaking with one voice. Um, mm-hmm. sure. So, um, just one final question. Uh, so, what do you like to do? You, you seem very, very busy. Every time I talk to you, you have lots of stuff. And I know we had to delay uh, doing this podcast because of all the stuff with COVID that you were dealing with. But uh, what do you like to do in your personal time? Do you have any hobbies and sports that you do? So what I love, love to do with my family, uh, my two teenage boys, my husband, we love to travel. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so we had a lot of plans for 2020 <laughs> yes, yes. that all got yeah. canceled. Well, I shouldn't say canceled. They're all have been um, delayed <laughs> until 2021. Yes. Um, so yeah, so we love to travel. We love to, to go new places and to do new things. Um, unfortunately that's on hold right now. Um, but we're looking forward to, uh, doing that in the future. Yeah, that's great. 
Well, Maura, thank you so much for uh, spending some uh, time with me and, and talking about uh, Boston MedFlight and, and our industry. I really uh, uh, appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Edward. This is a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe for future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com or on iTunes. Air Medical Today is also on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and you can find the links on the website. Remember, if you would like to be a sponsor or provide feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 612-367-6052. Special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song for the podcast. You can follow Stan on Facebook at facebook.com slash stanley.reeves.39. Take care and fly safe. Thank you.